Hi, I'm Peter Riegert. Welcome to the first episode of Vocal Heroes, my conversations with bright people for dark times. You want me to go alone? Baby, I don't want you to go at all. It's a fraternity party. I'm in the fraternity. How can I miss it? I'll write you a note. I'll say you're too well to attend. That's me and Karen Allen as Boone and Katie in Animal House, released in July of 1978. Karen and I met at her home in the Berkshires to talk about the adventures that led her to that role and the wonderful turns her life has taken since. You came to New York City relatively young. You were like 17 and a half or something. You went to FIT. Did you look up FIT? However, I came to discover that it was a place where young design students went. I did it completely on my own. Couldn't Google. <laughs> were you planning on a design career? Had you been thinking about acting? Acting had never even crossed my mind, except that I knew I was somebody who loved film. I knew what I gravitated towards. As a kid, I call it my first ecstasy. I would go and stand in the threshold of a store that had beautiful rugs or beautiful weavings or incredible fabrics. Literally, my heart would just start pounding in my chest, and I would get these flashes in front of my eyes, and I would think, oh my God, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. How old? Seven, eight, nine, ten. I had this incredible love of texture and pattern and color. I was drawn to it. And then my grandmother, I was very close to her. She taught me how to knit when I was very young, maybe four or five years old. So I was always putting together fibers, always playing with yarns. I would save up my money and I'd buy a quarter of a yard of 15 fabrics and I'd just play with them. Design was a natural extension. A lot of young people find it hard to leave home. My parents very much wanted me to stay and go to the University of Maryland. I always say I spent my childhood plotting my escape. I had my heart set on getting away from home. I basically was raised to leave, but a lot of kids growing up, it was terrifying for them to leave home. I mean, with all love and respect, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. I was expected to behave a certain way, to see the world a certain way. I just never felt like I fit into that. Very early on, I felt that I wouldn't figure out who I was or wouldn't really feel the freedom to explore myself if I if stayed there. Your folks stayed together? When or? my dad passed, they'd been together almost 70 years. Oh, my God. There's an adventure to the Karen Allen that I know. Did New York loom large in your imagination as a place to go to? I had been to New York a number of times because we moved around a lot when I was a kid, and one place that we lived was in New Jersey. It was 1969. I had not been allowed to go to Woodstock. I desperately wanted to go to Woodstock. Sure. I was not going to be permitted to do that. So this adventure of moving to New York was pretty exciting. You spent two years at Fashion Institute. Almost. I stayed for three semesters. And then I moved back to the area where my family lived. This is back at Maryland. Yeah, the University of Maryland. Right. And I took a couple courses at the University of Maryland, and I had a job. I had visited Jamaica in my late teens, early 20s, kind of on a fluke. And I fell in love with it, the culture, the island. And I socked away as much money as I possibly could 
with the idea that I would go live for a period of time in Jamaica and really not know what I was going to do after that. And then I ran into two friends who said, why don't you come to South America with us? We're driving from Pensacola, Florida to Peru. I'd been in Jamaica maybe five months, and I thought, it's time to head out onto the roads. I flew to Mexico City, waited for them. They came down, and then we started by road this trip through Mexico, Central America, into South America. How long was that? Eight or nine months. Jamaica and that, well over a year. Yeah. I was 20 at the time, and it was probably one of the most extraordinary learning experiences I could have given myself. We get our idea of who we are based on people constantly telling us who we are or having certain expectations of us. To be away from all of those for a year and a half, to have no one telling me anything about who I was or what I could do or what I should think, it gave me a window into myself. Did you speak Spanish? I learned Spanish. I wish my Spanish was as good now. Hey, you can get a room and a meal. (laughs) Not so bad. And and a baño. I vaguely remember that story when we first met. You had taken this adventure somewhere exotic. That's a path that very few people take, especially Americans. We just don't travel. While I was traveling, I had decided that I wanted to write. Writing, when I was in school, was always the thing I got the most positive reinforcement about. Did you keep a journal when you were on the road? No, I wish I had, but I read a lot. By the time I got back and found a little apartment and was living in Washington, D.C., I had this fantasy about wanting to be a writer with absolutely no idea how people went about becoming writers. I joined a writing group. They were called Mass Transit. You were just free to read your work and everybody would hear it, which was very freeing. I nurtured that part of myself at that time. I had this studio, tiniest little apartment that had one window in it. Through the entire months of winter from my apartment, I could see a window in this other apartment, and all I could see was a typewriter and a pair of hands. Not a face. Not a face. I would sit and watch the hands on the typewriter, and I would try to imagine the person that was attached to them. The visual of these hands... It's almost like watching Gershwin play the piano. And one spring day, I threw the window open, and I hear that window being thrown open. The person behind the fingers typing introduces himself. Long red hair, big red beard. And he told me later that he had been watching my hands on the typewriter. He is the director of a theater company, and he's been in Poland working with Jerzy He had worked with Peter Brook in France. Now, none of this means anything to me because I know absolutely nothing about the theater. The guy on the typewriter blows me away. And he's inviting you to become part of his theater company? No. We got to know each other sort of through the window. Then one day he said, my teacher is coming to the United States with his theater company. They're going to do a performance in Philadelphia. Would you like to come and see? And I said, sure. The only theater I'd ever seen is maybe a little bit of high school theater, whatever that is. Did you do a is. play in high school? Never. The kids who were in theater, they were just like way too confident and comfortable with who they were. They just seemed way too extroverted for me. I was scared of them. I got into a car. 
with all these actors. <laughs> Very intimidating. Yeah, of course. And we got to Philadelphia. We went into a church. We sat in a circle on the floor and out into the room come Jerzy Kotowski's six actors. It was the apocalypsis piece. And two hours later, I was a different person. I don't know how to say it differently. You had an Literally, epiphany. my head came off. The top of my head came off. Something in me woke up. I don't know what I just saw. It was all in Polish. I didn't understand a word. But what they were doing transcended language. And I felt completely connected to these actors. They liberated me. They were so transparent and so open. I walked out of there and I thought, I don't know what that was I saw, but whatever it was, I want to be a part of it. And I said later to this director who was my neighbor, do you ever train actors? And he said, oh yeah, we've just started a training program. And I said, could I be a part of it? And he said, well, you can audition. And I said, what's that? I was very much immersed in poetry at the time. There were a lot of poets in this mm -hmm. community bookshop. I chose a piece of Sylvia Plath. It was a radio play she had written called Three Women, all monologues about women in an abortion hospital or in the award. Yeah. yeah. One of the women I really connected to, and I memorized this monologue and I went in. I was so scared. At one point, I had tears running down my face. That's acting. <laughs> and I was sort of embarrassed. I thought, oh boy, I've really messed this up. At the end of it, they all kind of applauded. I became a part of this company for the next three what, what and a half years. Company? It was called the Washington Theater Laboratory. Well, whoever's um, listening to this podcast, <laughs> Karen and I are free to play a version of these two typewriting hands, except we'll be geezers instead of young people. I love origin stories. I mean, mm. where we find ourselves. Your description of having your head blown off by this experience that you were invited to by this redheaded, red bearded fellow who for months was just hands on a typewriter <laughs> is the way I understand life if you're yeah. open to it. You get invited places. I feel places. like my whole life has been like that. My story about getting cast in Animal House yeah. happened in the same way. Yeah. I feel like all kinds of little seminal moments, if you just pay attention to what's going on around you, there is a kind of law of the universe. The universe will guide you in the direction yeah. you need to go if you just stop trying to impose yourself upon it. Let it take you. I didn't realize it until I was moving along as an actor, but opportunity is always in front of us. The question is, are we alert enough to recognize it and are we brave enough to do something about it? You didn't have to go to Philadelphia. Had you told me two weeks before I went to see this play that I was going to be studying acting and God forbid, you know, a year later was going to be on stage, I would have thought you had lost your mind. And then suddenly it became the central focus of my life. I had never really been a very good student. I became a great student. I became so eager to learn. I would go to the library and I would get all of Tennessee Williams, all of Ibsen. Yeah, I just wanted suddenly to learn everything I could learn. And that's a real moment when that happens. You tap into the fire in the belly, I always call it. January 1st, 1971. My epiphany was the thought, which came out of my mouth, I'm going to be an actor. 
I don't mean I heard voices. I heard myself saying this. It was so powerful. I don't know what I would do if I hadn't found something that I wished to discipline myself over. You're describing the same because you came to it or it drew itself to you. I know. It's incredible to me. So you started performing with the Washington Theater Lab I in did. D.C. Well, those were my early performances. and I 1971? Right after Watergate. The hearings and stuff right. were going on. Oh, yeah. So I think it was 73. The plays that you did a year later mm -hmm. with this lab, this was the first time you acted. It was. And I had terrible stage fright. I would get so nervous about getting out on stage. I had a lot I had to overcome. Did anybody give you any wisdom about how to deal with that fear? Most of these actors had been acting for a long time and they were very comfortable with themselves. I was so shy and embarrassed. I tried to hide it rather than to ask how to deal with it. I just assumed that I was an aberration. Nobody else who wanted to be an actor had any stage fright issues. I, I love I... hearing this because it just, <laughs> especially going back to when we were young, why is it so hard to say, could yeah. you help me? I literally yeah. don't know what I'm doing. We went through a very rigorous training and on a soul heart level, I came towards acting because there was a lot of me that really needed to be healed. My family life had been very insular. We moved around a lot, so I would just barely start to get to know people when a lot of times we would move in the theater. I felt that I could explore all kinds of aspects of myself. For the first time, my fear, my sadness. In my family, joy was not <laughs> like you could even be too joyful. A lot of emotions in it. my family were really not encouraged. Yeah. Finding emotion for us as actors, how we connect, it's largely misunderstood by civilians. Oh, very much. You know, we're looked at as indulging this thing. but or learning, faking it. Yeah, yeah which of course is what people do all the time. Yes. But let me, are you free to talk about what your dad did? Yes. My dad was in the FBI. You know, he was a special agent. As children, you and your sisters, you didn't have a brother. Just, just two sisters. sisters. Were you told... Dad does a job that really shouldn't be talked about. Yes. So there was a sense of secrecy. secrecy. Yeah. I find that very interesting. Even if you were going to be a carpenter, you have to liberate yourself from that, Yeah. which is a scary yeah. thing to do. We were supposed to say he worked for the Department of Justice, and that was it. He joined the FBI the year I was born. He'd come home every night and take his gun out of his shoulder holster and I really never knew him, not in that G-man mode. After he retired, he became a very patient and very loving man. But, you know, it had a certain effect on him, on who he was, sure. how he presented himself to us and to the world. Your mom? She had left college after two years to marry my dad, and she went back and got her degree in education. She oh, taught I see. first I see. and second right. grade. Teaching, you're a kind of performer. I know a couple of FBI agents. There's a world that's full of theater. My mom was a piano teacher who had studied to be a concert pianist, but suffered from terrible performance anxiety. And my father, who was in the poultry business and did that most of his life, his fear was negotiating his contract every two years. What do we do as actors? We yeah. perform and we negotiate. Yeah. Part of this adventure of this podcast, in talking to other people like this, is seeing the drama in other people's 
lives. And as kids, what is it that we absorb from our parents? I used to jokingly say, if I ever figured out why I became an actor, I wouldn't have to be an actor anymore. What is it that you absorb, consciously, unconsciously? Even before I left home to go to New York to FIT, I got very preoccupied, you know, at a fairly young age, maybe 13, 14, 15. I had this sort of feeling that one of our jobs as human beings is to figure out why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. In Buddhism, it's called right livelihood. When you are in your right livelihood, you come into tune with yourself in Mm. a certain way. Now you're on this new path where you're literally being peeled apart. Was it scary? I very much had this feeling that there was a path and my job was to figure out what it was. I was very preoccupied with that until that moment when I went to see Grotowski and Roger Cheslak, who was his main actor, who usually played the leading roles in all of his pieces, he called him an acrobat of the soul. This grandmother I was close to, she always said to me things like, aspire to what you admire. She would just say that. She would even say that to me when I was a young child. Aspire to what you admire. And he was so extraordinary. He gave me something to aspire to. In our conversation, You've described three things that my ears have pricked to. One is your grandmother and what yarn meant. There was something about it that had captured you. Yeah. Then you had this adventure traveling. You're equally cracked open because you have to be. You've got to communicate with people to get a meal. And then this experience with this Polish acting company, as you describe it to me, what's this path that I'm on? You were moving in that direction until you stumbled upon this guy. All you saw was his hands. I know. It's magical. There is this etheric hand that guides me. A lot of times it points in my life, you know, where I really, really struggle. If I just open my eyes and my mind to the world, I can almost know that there is going to be some guidance. To me, it's not that everybody has a story. It's that everybody is a story. Everybody's a Tolstoy novel eventually, maybe with a little (laughs) Mel Brooks thrown in there. But, you know, we've got a lot going on. You've worked with your DC company, The Lab. Right. And you moved back to New York around 1977. Six. I came to New York with $2,000 that I had earned. I found an apartment way down in Soho, five-floor walk-up. But nice little apartment if you could make it up the five flights of stairs. <laughs> you have to be young. <laughs> and I think my rent was $110 a month. Did you look at the Strasbourg Institute? It sounded like you I chose wanted, it specifically for I something. I chose that and I chose the Stella Adler Studio. Right. So yeah. you went to both. All my friends who studied either with Stella or with Strasbourg, as I understand it, because I never went to acting school, but all my friends talked about their legendary battle with each other over the years. I thought, okay, I'm going to study with these two legendary teachers because I felt that there was an acting lingo that I really didn't know very much about. You came up with me. Besides Animal House being our first film, you started what is called late to acting. Yes. I remember working with Paul Schofield. He's one of my idols. And we were having lunch one day. He asked me, when did you start? And I said, start what? He said, acting, dear boy. When did you start acting? And I said, oh, I was uh, 23. 
And he paused and said, late. And I thought, <laughs> late? What do you mean late? At eight, nine, ten, there, it's a profession. We would be considered coming late to the party. Yeah. How you got your Animal House job is every actor's fantasy. The little three-by-five card. At the studio at, or at the institute? It was at the Strasburg Institute. And it was just a little card on a the bulletin board. A little three-by-five card, handwritten. It said, feature film, casting college-age actors and actresses, send picture and resume to. And I was just walking by the bulletin board, and I saw it. I popped a picture and resume in. Now, did I know anything about what a picture and resume should look like professionally in New York? No. I'd been there for maybe three months in New York. You're not in a play or anything. No, no, no. I'm just studying. You're just studying. I would have liked to have been in a play, sure. but I couldn't get arrested, as they say. At a resume, which was all theater, and then I had a picture, which was four photographs of me doing four different characters in plays. It was eccentric looking. Once I actually saw what it pictured resume was supposed to look like. You mailed it into her. And about three days later, I got a phone call. Dee Dee Well, one of the casting directors, saw this. And she said, I want you to come and audition for this. And she gave me an address. And I showed up on Park Avenue and it was universal. I walked into the room and Dee Dee said to me, I know you don't have an agent. I know you're not in the union but I want you to come in and meet John Landis because you're my girl. And she slapped me on the shoulder. I'd been in New York for three months. Nobody had treated me as though I was special in any way. Take a number kind of situation. Did you read for Landis? I met Landis. They gave me some sides and had me come back, and I read with Harold Ramis. And they wanted me to fly to Los Angeles and audition for the Universal Guys which is when you and I met. I don't remember us doing any taping. I don't think we they just taped read together. It. We just read. How you got your Animal House job and how you got an agent and that you didn't know anything about a resume rings true to me because what did I know? I had no clue. I called a friend of mine. I said, I'm going to do this. How do you do this? With Animal House. No, no, with acting. I said, what do you do? He said, well, you get a picture and resume, and then you buy all the newspapers that have the auditions. And right. I said, well, 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 what's a picture and resume? What kind of picture? He said, of your head. It's called a headshot. Where do you get these? He said, have somebody take a picture yeah. who lives on your street. Okay. And what's a resume? He said, a resume is a page of all the acting you've done. Ronnie, I did a play with you in college and a play in high school. He said, make up your resume. So I'll be lying. <laughs> he said, Peter, it's acting. That's what we do. <laughs> Won't they know? Peter, they know you have no experience because they've never heard of you. <laughs> They're going to put the resume aside. Every beginning story, for the most part, who would know? Somebody's yeah. got to teach you. I really didn't understand anything about a film, right. how it was made. I think I had the job. And Landis wanted me to read with you and another actress. The best thing about Landis for us, he was not interested in anybody that didn't strike him as having the essential nature of the character as he understood it. I mean, it was my first film, your first film. Yeah. But John said, what's your instinct? And I said, I think anybody who's going to see Karen is going to fall in love with her. We made Animal House in 77. 77. 
this casting director saw you and literally saw you. That's the magical story that every actor keeps in their head. I was living in Greenwich Village, hadn't even made the connection that I wanted to be an actor. But I thought, obviously, someone will see me walking along the streets and stop me and say, you, you should be in a movie. Totally nonsensical. But that experience that you just described. Dee Dee Well told me later, she put the three by five card at Lee Strasberg because she thought these are serious actors who study here. That card had been up for two weeks and she got eight pictures and resumes. On any given day, two or 300 actors walked in and out. It was right by the door. Eight people saw that, wrote it down, and sent their picture and resume. She couldn't believe it. She thought she was going to get a huge response. Opportunity is right staring us in the face. Yeah. And some people go, oh, an opportunity. And most go, oh, a three by five card. <laughs> <laughs> they find some reason to yeah. dismiss it. I've never been disappointed in finding the courage to follow up, whether it's to meet somebody, to organize a dinner, or do this, putting the plane together as it's in the air. I've never done this before, but I didn't know how to <laughs> That's act a good before. Expression. Yeah. Animal House opened a lot of doors for me and oh, yeah. I know for you as well. Absolutely. From the time Animal House came out through to the time that I had Nick, my son. From 77, Nick was born in 90? 90, so maybe 89 when I got pregnant with him. That period of time, I had opportunities to work almost as much as I wanted. I navigated those 12 years fairly well. I always had some sort of inner belief that I could turn down something I didn't think was well-written. People sent me things I was truly offended by in right. terms of the way in which they treated the female characters. And I don't know how I came by this, but I somehow had the confidence to say no often. You didn't let not working stop you from living. We've all go through these periods where you realize we're at the mercy of a phone call that we may never right. get. You were going to somehow take advantage of life, whatever that may be. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it can be a horrible feeling to not get a phone call. Is that true? You came to this Buddhist insight? After I had Nick, it became a whole other question. When he was young, it wasn't that difficult to bring him along when I was working, although the circumstance of doing that was not so great. And he would be left in a hotel, or if we brought him to the set, he would often cry every time I left the trailer, and I would go to the set feeling bereft. By the time he was going to school, there was a cost to taking him. The best I could offer him was to be marooned in a hotel room with a babysitter in some godforsaken places. They're beautiful locations, mm -hmm. but there's nothing to do. I had to be very involved in trying to figure out how this worked. Being in New York, maybe I could do work in New York and I wouldn't have to be pulling him out of school. So I moved back and then I did a couple of plays as he comes home from school, I could very quickly get him some dinner and then I'd have to leave and go to the theater. And I came to the conclusion that I wasn't going to navigate this successfully. My priorities shifted profoundly. And to be a mother and to be a support system for him in his life became the thing I was most focused on. 
And I became convinced that there were other things I could do creatively that would satisfy that part of me that has this yearning to create and express and be involved in a community of people. Do you feel like you recognized in what you weren't giving, Nick, what you hadn't gotten from your parents? I would be a different kind of parent because I had been able to go out into the world, get to know myself. But I also had given a lot of thought to what kind of parent do I want to be? Creatively speaking, what would I like to bring? What do I have to offer? Not trying to apply to therapy school, but what do you do when you get a chance to say, I can do this differently? I went into therapy the moment I found out where I was pregnant. And I said, I want to work on me rising to the best in myself as a parent. Because I was 39, I figured I probably wouldn't have another child. I thought, I want to be present for him. I want to be present in his life. That was what I realized I aspired to. Then what do I have to do to make that happen? Even though it wasn't going to be about traveling all over the place and being an actor who was going to be in demand, I had to let that go. I was so panic-stricken about losing my livelihood. 15 years of being totally immersed in a certain career. It's hard to get, and it doesn't last very long. One of the solutions to that struggle was saying to myself, what else have you always wanted to do? I could see this as deprivation, or I could see it as an opportunity. We have a lot of control in a world of no control. Okay, this other thing is not working. I have to redesign this. One of my favorite quotes is Henry Miller, the novelist, nothing goes to waste. And I thought he meant it about creativity and his writing, but it's really true about life if you let it, bad or good or whatever. Literally, yeah. every experience is a value. It ended up guiding me towards doing something creatively where I didn't have to depend on other people. And the thing I went back to was design. Is that when you started the store? It's when I started my studio, Monterey Fiber Arts. I went back to FIT and I studied- After Nick? When he was actually 11. I was trying to hold on to the place in the country. I was trying to hold on to our apartment. It wasn't going to work in New York. Financially, I just couldn't make it happen. And we had to decide if we were going to sell this place in the country or sell the place in New York. I talked to Nick about it quite a bit, even though he was only 12. 12 we decided is a, that's a person. We decided to come back up to the country. And I went back to FIT before we did and just studied these Japanese knitting machines. I was 23 when I started in 1971. And I would say about seven, eight years later, I started noticing a lot of the young men and women that I had started with. I didn't see them at auditions anymore. And occasionally I'd bump into them. And these were really talented people. And I'd say, I haven't seen you. Enough of them said, well, I've chosen this and I have kids and I'm married and I can afford a place to live. And I was fascinated and moved by their ability to do what you were just describing, which is to say, I can't sustain it the way it's been, and I have a child. It was a joy to yeah. be there for him. He's a wonderful being. Oh, he's amazing. He is a kid who felt love. There was always attention available for him. It is reflected in who he's become as an adult. He came along and said, mm, I think I need this. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't mean with his words. Yeah. But yeah, as yeah, a yeah. being, as a, yeah. he was blowing your mind in another way. It was a great investment of my heart and my soul and my intelligence. And, and it's every, creative. Yeah. Raising a child is probably one of the most creative things you can do. Well, you're literally um, creating something. It's something only women really get to do, which is make something out of their body. Men do help. Helping is not the same thing as doing the cooking. <laughs> Cleaning the dishes, not the same thing as making a meal. Colwell, you are so fantastic in this movie. It's an amazing piece of work because you get to do what I love to do, which is do nothing. Mm. You were given the luxury of just being this person. It's her daily life in this town, which is called Colwell. It's losing its post office, its zip code, and she's losing her job. The opposite of you finding Animal House, the director was trying to find you. The director knew what agency represented me, and he sent the screenplay three times, and he got literally no response from them. What's his name? His name is Tom Quinn. He had sent it basically saying, I wrote this with Karen Allen in mind, and I have done this one other film that won all these awards, and he's the head of the film department at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Young guy, did his first film for seven or $8,000. He wrote it, directed it, edited it. He then had the facilities at Drexel, and it won Slam Dance. It got nominated for a Gotham Award, and the Biennale gave him a grant to make his next film. All of which, if I was an agent, I would have found very impressive. The fact that he did not let no stop him, because it wasn't you saying no, it was no, your agency. it was them completely ignoring him, dismissing him. We looked to agents to be a kind of filter in that way. I want to work with agents whose filter I trust. I have a store in Great Barrington. He went through my store's email. I watched his film. I read the screenplay. And I emailed him back and he drove three hours to sit down with me and have lunch. Here or in, here in Great Barrington. Yeah. When I called them to say that I had read it and that I had met with Tom, they were somewhat annoyed that he had gone around them yeah. and that I was now interested in this film that they hadn't bothered to show me. There's nuggets of gold yeah. that others may not see. That's true. And I they didn't see it. And when they read it, their response was, why? I just said, I really like Tom. I really liked his first film. There is really something very interesting about this character for me to explore. Turned out to be a wonderful movie. I'm not blowing smoke up your nose. It is a beautiful performance of yours. It took probably another year for it to actually happen. They were in the process of raising the money. And Do you remember the budget? 225 for Colwell. When I did Bill Forsyth's third film, Local Hero, Local Hero, I think, was made for five or six million dollars. His first film was like forty thousand dollars. His second was four hundred thousand dollars. And then he got this Warner Brothers thing. But yeah. the imagination that it takes in any discipline, in any world, to get drawn into and wish to make something, I find so moving. The story that I heard before I found an agent. Henry Fonda, who loved the theater and was a stage actor as well, in 1962 went to the opening of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It was the party afterwards, which is filled with show business glitterati. 
Fonda goes up to Edward Albee and says, I want to thank you for one of the greatest nights I've ever spent in the theater. And Albee said, I'm just so sorry you didn't want to be in it. We offered you the part of George. We sent the play to your agent, and they told us that it wouldn't be for you. (laughs) Henry Fonda looked at Edward Albee and just basically said, I'll be right back. And he called up his agent, and it was William Morris, and he fired his agent. And that's where I learned how to say to other agents, don't turn anything down because you never know. And I have a goofy enough sensibility to think I'm going to see something that you may not. The other joke was the reason that they couldn't find Patty Hearst for all those months was because she was a client at William Morris. (laughs) I'm not putting agents down. You know, I've had my share of terrific agents. Joan Heiler taught me something. It was a miniseries called Ellis Island, probably the most money I had ever gotten. But Joan sensed in me some trepidation, and she said, what's bothering you? This is a good job. You'll have a good time. You'll be in London for four months. She said, what are you nervous about? Are you nervous about the money? Yeah, I think I'm nervous about the money. I'm nervous that I'm not going to give (laughs) $125,000 worth of acting. Peter. There is no value to your talent. You don't think this is money that you deserve, do you? This is the money we could negotiate. There is no ceiling on what you're worth. Don't confuse money with value. And I thought that was one of the smartest things I ever heard. We're commodities, you know? You're in a hit movie. Somebody else wants to hire you. They think you're the reason it's a hit movie, then they pay you a lot of money. I've never articulated that before, but I definitely have had those feelings. Can I rise to the occasion of this amount of money I'm being paid and be worth that? I understand what it is to work for nothing, because we all worked for nothing in the beginning. The world that I was entering, this theater world, this acting world, and even in the real world, you are paid for your work, but you got to fight for it. I deserve to be here. Exactly. As little money as we got paid for Animal House, $3,000, $3,500, something like that. That was the biggest paycheck I'd ever had in my life. One of the most inspiring things a director ever said to me, to whatever extent you're on the outside, watching yourself, judging yourself, criticizing yourself, applauding yourself, whatever, to whatever extent you're out there observing, that's the extent to which you're not present. Well, that's what I felt about your performance in Coldwell. Uh, It was like the camera was eavesdropping on your life. When I'm working with a good director, when we are doing a play or a movie, the best ones, in my experience, have always said, it's you. You don't have to become the character. It's you. The guy on the typewriter and the experience of that very powerful Polish acting company and that thing that you got about design, what your grandmother gave you. And years later, you started a design company. It's just very moving to hear. I live off of those kinds of stories because it's just such a beautiful example of when people let themselves into each other when they literally have to let the window open for us to share each other. I'll tell you one more little story like this. My life is riddled with them. 
When I was in the transition of knowing that I was going to have to figure out something else to do creatively, if I could figure out what I was going to do, this thing was going to save me. I was sitting on a bus in New York City on my way to meet my son at his school. And across the aisle was a woman who was knitting. Our eyes met. She came over and she sat down next to me with her knitting and we struck up a conversation. She was the person who told me about the knitwear program that was now at FIT. There was this wonderful woman that taught knitting machines. And we sat there on the bus and I thought this was exactly the kind of information I needed to hear. I called FIT and that was the day in which it became clear that there was a lifeline out there for me. You just don't understand all the little pieces of the puzzle until they actually fit together. And you think, oh my God, you know. I don't know Buddhist philosophy, but I believe there's something to the effect that when the student is ready, the teacher yeah, yeah, shows yeah. up. That's true. Is there something that you have, either a couplet or a line from a poem? There's this beautiful little five-line phrase that I return to again and again and again. And let me see if I'm going to be able to remember it clearly. Prolong not the past. Invite not the future. Do not alter your innate wakefulness. Fear not appearances. There is nothing more than this. Can't do better than that. That inspires me endlessly. Anyway, I can't thank you enough. The great thing is Karen is giving me (laughs) lunch. So (laughs) thank you so much. This has been a great honor. I'm hungry. I'm going to make some lunch. (laughs) Hold on. Vocal Heroes is brought to you by Two Tequila Productions. The show is produced by Cornelia Reed. Our editor is Lila Newman, and sound recording is by Mark Solomon. Mary Edith Burrell is the creative consultant, and Derek Burroughs built our website, vocalheroes.com. Thanks to Andy Kubachevsky and Amygdala Music for the theme. Our appreciation to Genevieve Garrity for her early editing work. Special thanks to Leslie Rossman, James Frazee, Robin Erdang, and Freya Reed. For more, visit vocalheroes.com. I'm Peter Riegert. Thanks for listening.